Hebrews 1. We're going to focus mainly on the first half of verse 5. This is an exact quotation from Psalm 2, verse 7. Psalm 2, that was our Scripture reading this morning. And Hebrews 5 quotes from verse 7 of it. And I want to look at that quotation and its meaning. And let's consider the nature of Jesus' relationship to His heavenly Father. And I want you to see how the sonship of Christ is unique. What does the term the Son of God mean with regard to Christ's eternality and His divine power? And what does Scripture mean when it says He is begotten of the Father? Those are hard questions, and and this is actually more advanced doctrine than I normally would try to teach to a general audience that probably includes some people who are still learning the basics, but stay with me, and I promise I'm going to try to make it as easy as possible because these are truths that you really do need to know. We're going to deal with something that is an essential point of Trinitarian theology. Now, you may wonder if this has any practical significance, an application to your real life, and it does. There, in fact, there is no doctrine in the Bible that is so abstract that it lacks practical significance. Everything in the Bible is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. You know, we tend to categorize truth as either doctrinal or practical, as if those were totally separate categories. But the Apostle Paul was expressly telling Timothy that all Scripture is profitable for both doctrine and instruction in righteousness. And furthermore, as Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 8, the whole aim and the ultimate reward of our faith is the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. So there especially is no truth about Jesus that doesn't have practical implications. At the very least, what we believe about Him defines who we worship, and it will affect how we worship. So it's practical. Hebrews 1, and and I want you to watch the logical flow of the text. I'm going to read the whole chapter, not right now, but in just a minute. It's a short chapter. Uh, I do want to focus mainly on verse 5. It is a short chapter, by the way. I had an argument with Pete Bowden this morning about whether it's short or not, because he had to read it. He said, it's 14 verses. I said, yeah, but I memorized the whole thing when I was in college. And uh, he's like, well, that's, that's you. He said, if I have to stand up and read it, I'm picking a shorter passage. So he went to Psalm 2. So anyway, we're just going to focus on verse 5, which is that quote from Psalm 2. But before I get there, let's survey the argument that is being made by the writer of this text and try to follow his logic. Here's an overview of the chapter before I read it. Verses 1 and 2 start with an emphatic declaration that Christ is the capstone of God's revelation to humanity. He is the very incarnation of truth from God to us. He said that, I'm the way and the truth and the life. So he is, throughout the Old Testament era, God would reveal truth to humanity through prophets and dreams and various other means, but The writer here is saying, now He has sent His own Son, who is the consummate, full, final self-revelation of God to the whole world. And in that short introduction, in that first verse, really, establishes and introduces the whole point of the book of Hebrews. This whole book 
I think it's an epistle. It doesn't read like the rest of the epistles because there's no address and all of that, but it's an extended series of biblical proofs showing that Christ is the fulfillment of every truth that was ever hinted at or foreshadowed in all of the types and, and figures in Old Testament times. He is the resolution and the unveiling of every mystery that was ever set forth in the Old Testament. And He is the answer to every essential question that was left hanging when the canon of Old Testament revelation was complete. He finishes all of that, and the author of this book is going to give throughout the book a long series of arguments to prove that point, that Christ is superior to everything we learned in the Old Testament. But he begins in chapter 1 with an emphatic declaration of Christ's deity, that Jesus is God. That's the whole theme of chapter 1. It's a vigorous affirmation of the deity and eternality of Christ. And in order to prove the point, he makes the argument in this chapter that Christ is superior to the angels. It's an interesting argument, isn't it? Because the angels are the highest of all created beings in the universe. The cherubim and seraphim are some of the highest-ranking angelic creatures, and they permanently guard the throne room of God in heaven, and they themselves are engaged in perpetual worship. Even the archangels are worshiping constantly. And notice verse 6, when the Father brings Christ into the world, He says, let all God's angels worship Him. The fact that angels worship Him proves that He is God. And He goes on to make a series of similar points. Angels are created. He is the Creator, verses 2 and 3. He created the world and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That's about Jesus saying He is God. He says, angels are God's servants, Christ is God's Son, verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my Son? The angels offer worship to God, as you see in verse 6, but Christ receives worship even from the Father, verse 8. Of the Son, the Father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever and so on. So nothing and no one in all of the universe is greater than Christ. That argument is the starting point of the book of Hebrews. I think it's actually maybe a more definitive declaration that Jesus is God than you have in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, which says in those words, He was God. But the whole rest of the book of Hebrews then is about the superiority of Christ. He is higher than the angels. He's superior to the Old Testament priesthood. He atoned for sins once and for all in contrast to the blood of millions of bulls and goats which could never actually take away sin. According to Hebrews 10 verses 11 and 12, He rises above every priest who stands daily offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. And by the way, that's a theme throughout Hebrews, that He sat down at the right hand of God. The author of this book is meticulously making one argument from start to finish, namely that Christ is better in every way than all of the elements of Old Testament religion combined. And here's how the book of Hebrews introduces that theme. Chapter 1, verse 1, and, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. Pete, I'm going to do this, I hope, without stumbling. Long ago, 
at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Actually, I'm going to stop right there. Pete, you're right. This is long. (laughs) So we'll save some time because that really covers everything everything we need to say. Now, here's some background. This letter was apparently written, it's a, I believe it is an epistle, it was written to be circulated among Jewish converts to Christianity in the first century church. And it becomes evident throughout the course of this epistle that what motivates the writer of this epistle in the first place is that there was an epidemic of apostasy. He's writing to persuade half-hearted people and hangers-on not to come short of authentic faith. He's saying, go all the way with Christ and put your faith in Him to people who had identified with the church and made a pretense or a first step towards following Christ, but they really hadn't made that step of faith yet. And, And this epistle is, I think, fairly easy to 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 approximately date. It was written apparently shortly before Rome sacked Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and and that's obvious, I think, from the argument he's making that the priesthood and the sacrificial system were still operating when he wrote this. Also, Hebrews 13.23 mentions that Timothy had recently been released, the writer says. So that suggests that Timothy had been imprisoned for the sake of Christ and the gospel, and knowing the history there, the first great empire-wide persecution against Christians was instigated in July of A.D. 64 by Nero, and he did it to take the focus off himself after the great fire that devastated Rome. He probably set that fire himself because he wanted, he thought parts of Rome looked like a slum, he wanted more glorious buildings. And this was his depraved urban renewal scheme. He just set fire to it all. And when it became a devastating conflagration, it got out of control, he needed someone to blame, and so he blamed the Christians. They were unpopular anyway. And that unleashed a vicious assault against Christianity that ranged from one end of the empire to the other, starting around A.D. 65. So between A.D. 65, the persecution begins, A.D. 70, the the temple is destroyed. Somewhere in there, this epistle had to to be written. In A.D. 70, rather, Titus and his armies, that's when they utterly leveled the Jewish temple and destroyed Jerusalem, and millions of Jews were exiled to the outer reaches of the Roman Empire. Families were separated. 
And without the temple, all of the distinctive ceremonies of, and the ritualism of the Old Testament sacrificial system, it all suddenly came to an end. The temple and the Levitical system, and all the sacrifices, that has never been restored even to this day. And so you have these pretty clear time clues. When Hebrews was written, Timothy had been released, so the temple apparently had not yet been destroyed. So that means Hebrews most likely was written in a three-year time window after about A.D. 67 and before A.D. 70. And that would explain the apostasy epidemic. It was costly to be a Christian. Political pressure from Rome was building. The cultural and social pressure on Jewish converts in Jerusalem was enormous because tensions between Rome and Jerusalem were at all-time high, and the Christians were being accused by their families of abandoning Judaism. Despite the release of Timothy, persecution of Christians was intensifying. It was getting worse. It was a threat. Nothing in those days was more politically incorrect than being a Christian. And feeling all of that hostility, increasing numbers of people were leaving the church, bailing out on Christianity in order to go back to their Jewish roots and their Jewish religion. Their connection with Christ, whatever it was, was obviously only superficial. Perhaps it was sentimental. Certainly it was half-hearted. They must have known that the Christian message was true. They wanted the promise of the gospel, but they hadn't truly counted the cost and put their hand to the plow and repented of their sins and ceased from striving to establish a righteousness of their own through the law. In other words, they had not entered into the true Sabbath rest, which is salvation in Christ. That's exactly how the writer of Hebrews says it in chapter 4, enter into God's rest. Now, I think, frankly, that the Visible church in every generation has far more people like that than most of us imagine. The people who were bailing out in those days were exactly like the thousands of disciples in John 6 who followed Christ at first because they were fascinated by His miracles, but then they turned away as soon as something offended them in His teaching. Half-hearted followers, hangers-on who hadn't yet fully embraced Christ with wholehearted faith and repentance. And that is what the famous warning passages in Hebrews are all about. There are five places in the book of Hebrews where the author interrupts the argument that he's making, and he, he gives a passionate warning, a series of passionate warnings about the dangers of drifting away from Christ. And he interjects these warnings. You'll find them in Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4, Hebrews 3, verses starting at Hebrews 3, 7, going through Hebrews 4, 13, there's a second warning. The third one is Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 12, a full chapter there. And also Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 39, another long passage. All of those are warnings. And then Hebrews 12, the whole chapter is the final warning. If you trace those warnings through chapter 10, you'll see that each warning becomes more severe than the previous one. But then the final warning in chapter 12 is kind of a plea. It's an extended, earnest word of encouragement to take the message seriously and, and come to God with genuine, humble, repentant faith and trembling fear because our God is a consuming fire. And so the first of those four warnings 
the first four of those warnings, I should say, stress the threat of judgment for anyone who refuses to hear or obey. The fifth warning is more of a plea. And all of the warnings were for the benefit of the almost Christian. The writer is urging us to weigh the profound gravity of our duty before God and to respond with reverence and awe and genuine repentance. But the rest of this epistle, in between those warnings, is showing us the superiority of Christ. That's the theme. It's filled with Old Testament quotations because the writer wants to prove to his Jewish readers that Christ is greater than any aspect of their religious traditions. He is the fulfillment of what those things promised. He is greater than their cultural heritage. He's greater than the Mosaic Covenant. He's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than the sacrificial system. In short, Christ is greater than all of the religious protocols of the Old Testament era, the Old Covenant era. Even the unsophisticated simplicity of Christian worship, lacking any kind of ceremony or, or, or elaborate ritual, it's all the simplicity of our worship is, he says, actually superior to the liturgy and the pageantry, the, the pomp and circumcision of the Old Testament Judaism. And so that's the main message of the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is superior to everything else in the universe because, after all, He is the one who made everything else. And the writer makes that point at the very start, verses 2 and 3 of, of chapter 1. And then the rest of chapter 1 is, it shows us with a series of Old Testament references that Christ is superior even to the angels. He starts, He created everything, then He starts with the highest of all creatures, the angels. And again, all of this adds up to a crystal clear, profound declaration that Christ is God. Verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And more than that, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. By the way, only God could do that. It would be blasphemy to say that anyone but God is upholding the universe by His power. In Psalm 75, verse 53, Yahweh speaks and He says, when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. But Colossians 1.17 affirms that's Christ's role. In Him, all things hold together, the writer of Col Paul says in Colossians 1. In other words, Christ is God. He is the one who holds the universe together. And what's more, the Father addresses Him as God, verse 8, of the Son. The Father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. By the way, where is that throne right now? Verse 3 tells us Christ has finished His atoning work, He has ascended into heaven, and He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. I said that's a theme throughout Hebrews, that He's seated at the right hand of God. The writer clearly has Psalm 110 in mind. This is one of the great messianic psalms, and the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 110 repeatedly throughout the book of Hebrews. It's what he's alluding to in verse 3. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, "'The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool.'" And in fact, the, the author of Hebrews goes on to quote that verse near the end of our chapter, verse 13, one of the verses I didn't read. It says, "'To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet?' His point is that Christ occupies a position that is higher 
than any created being, including the very highest of the archangels, which is to say Christ Himself, as the Creator of all things, cannot be a created being Himself. He is God. There's no other conclusion you can draw. And the writer of Hebrews further proves the point with a carefully chosen array of Old Testament quotations. He's writing to people who wanted to return to the Old Testament forms and traditions, so he shows us that the Old Testament itself is pointing us to Christ. That, by the way, is what the Old Testament texts that Jesus explained to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that's what he was saying. When beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And then later that same evening with the 11 faithful disciples, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. You've heard me say, I wish I could have eavesdropped on that conversation with Jesus about the Old Testament. Well, here, I'm certain, is the kind of truth Jesus was explaining to them. So, pay close attention to the argument here. Jesus does the works of God, verses 2 and 3. He created the world and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He has a permanent position where no lesser being than God has any right to be, verse 3, at the right hand of the majesty on high. And now, verse 4, this introduces the point that we want to talk about. The name of Jesus, the name He has inherited, is more excellent than any name that was ever given to the angels. And in fact, the superiority of the name that our writer has in mind is a measure of Christ's superiority over the angels. So what is that name? Well, it's one you know because it is the name used for Jesus in the most familiar verse of Scripture, He is the only begotten Son of God. That's it. It's Jesus is God's only begotten Son. That's the name He's talking about. Now, just an aside. I'm reading from the ESV. I, I normally use it when I preach. If you have the ESV and look at John 3.16, it says, God gave His only Son. That's the way it says it. And the NIV says, He gave His one and only Son. The King James Version, the New King James Version, and the NS, NASB all say He gave His only begotten Son. Let me explain why there's this difference. They're all right, basically. The Greek word in that verse is monogenes. We've talked about this at least once before in other contexts, but here's a review. Monogenes can mean either one of a kind or only begotten. The word could mean either thing. It's, it's never used of anything other than sons or daughters, so it does mean only child. That's what it signifies, an only child. Luke uses it three chapters in a row as he relates narratives about how Jesus healed people. In Luke chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus raises from the dead a young man whom Luke says was the only son of his mother, monogenes. He was her one and only child. And then in Luke 8, verse 42, Jesus is met by Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, who begs Jesus to come to his house because, Luke says, he had an only daughter and she was dying. Again, monogenes, his only child. And then in the next chapter, Luke 9, 
Verse 38, behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child, monogenes. So wherever we would speak of someone as an only child, Scripture uses the word monogenes. That's what the Greeks, that was the Greek term for that, only child. I prefer the translation you have in the King James, NASB, and New King James, only begotten, because it actually highlights what it is that makes Jesus unique. There are, of course, many sons of God. You and I are called God's children by adoption. Galatians 3.26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And Romans 8.14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And even the angels are called sons of God three times in the book of Job. So you have to ask, how is Christ the only child, the one and only Son of God? How can that, that title, how can that establish the fact that He is greater than the angels? And the writer of Hebrews answers that question, again, verse 5, with a quotation from Psalm 2, verse 7. This is where he quotes that. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? This is the voice of God speaking prophetically to Christ in the psalm. Christ says, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's from the psalm. So there's that word again, begotten, and it's an important word. The Greek term for begotten is geneo. That's the root of the word monogenes, monogeneo. And so it clearly speaks of begetting. Now, this is vital. No one else ever is said to be begotten by the Father, not even the Holy Spirit. This is what makes Christ unique, one of a kind, and more on that in a minute. But what that expression means, only begotten, is that Christ is God's Son by nature, not by adoption, not by appointment, not by creation, not by His conception in Mary's womb. This position, Son of God, is not a role He assumed at His incarnation, because if that's what it meant, that wouldn't be any proof at all that Jesus is higher than the angels. God could have assigned an angel to that role if it were merely a role that Christ stepped into. But this is a description of Jesus' very essence. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, it says. He is from eternity past to eternity future, He is the only begotten Son of God. His eternal glory rests in that reality according to John 1.14. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Now, as as a man begotten by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary's womb, Jesus didn't have any distinctive glory as a man. In fact, His glory as God's Son was veiled under His humanity. Isaiah 53, verse 2, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. The glory that shone on the Mount of Transfiguration was divine glory. That's the glory of God. That glory was the proof that Jesus is God incarnate. And John underscores that in John chapter 1 when he says the glory of Christ was glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And so it's clear, isn't it, that this expression, only begotten Son of God, speaks of His deity. 
It's an eternal reality. The begetting that is spoken of in Hebrews 1.5 pertains to the deity of Christ, not to His humanity. It sets Him apart from every created being and exalts Him as God even above the angels. That is the one truth that explains His eternal and ineffable glory. He is begotten by His Father. Don't miss the the point here. The writer of Hebrews is citing Psalm 2-7 as proof that Jesus is God. And the context in Hebrews 1, as we've already seen, makes that point inescapable. There's no other way to interpret it. Just look again at the declarations of Jesus' deity in this chapter. We've already noted most of them, but here's a list in order. Jesus created the world, verse 2. He is not only the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, but He also upholds the universe by the word of His power, verse 3. The Father calls for Him to be worshipped even by the angels, verse 6. The Father addresses Him as God, and He receives praise from the Father, verses 8 and 9. His throne, and therefore He Himself, are eternal, according to verse 8. And if you doubt whether this expression forever and ever in verse 8 includes eternity past, Just look at verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. In the beginning, that is eternity past. So every created thing is the work of His hands. Verse 10 purposely echoes Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The writer of Hebrews uses every key expression that you find in that opening verse of Scripture, in the beginning, heavens and earth. And he's actually quoting from Psalm 102, verse 25, and the writer of Hebrews says, this is the voice of the Father attributing the work of creation to His Son. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And verses 11 and 12 here in Hebrews 1 continue a verbatim quote from Psalm 102. Again, this is God the Father praising God the Son, affirming not only that He is the Creator, but also that He is eternal and He is immutable, unchanging. Now think about that. If He's the Creator, He's eternal, He's immutable, those are incommunicable attributes of deity. It can't apply to anybody but God, by definition. So this entire chapter is an extended affirmation of the deity of Christ. By the way, this is a good chapter to show Jehovah's Witnesses when you're witnessing to them. You know, they're pretty thoroughly prepped on how to deflect the point, the obvious point of John chapter 1. They'll brush that off. But most of them won't have a clue how to respond to Hebrews chapter 1. They teach that Christ is an angel. He's an incarnate archangel according to their theology. But the whole point of this chapter is that Christ is superior to any mere angel. Even the Father addresses Him as God. So you can't deal honestly and carefully with this chapter and come away denying the deity of Christ. It's the whole point the writer's making. And in the process, he lays a foundation for one of the most vital truths of Trinitarian doctrine, namely the eternal Sonship of Christ. He upholds the, the twin truths of Christ's Sonship and His deity, and He affirms them both. And in fact, He regards the Sonship of Christ as one of the proofs of His deity. By the way, 
That is exactly how everyone in first century Judaism would have seen it. To say that Jesus was the only begotten Son of God was to say He is absolutely equal to God in His divine nature and in His authority. It's not a title of subordination, it's a, it's a title of equality. In fact, let me be clear, there is not a hint of subordination in the designation only begotten Son. It's an expression that denotes absolute equality. Father and Son are one in essence, and they are one in rank and privilege, so they are equal in every sense. And every person in any first century Middle Eastern culture understood that because they considered a son as deserving of the very same respect and honor as the Father. You can see that in the Gospels. The Jews would sometimes speak of God as our Father in the collective sense, as in Isaiah 63, verse 16, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from old, that's your name. Or Malachi 2, verse 10, have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? So they saw themselves collectively as children of God, just like we do. We are God's children, first by creation and then by redemption. But, and this is what's important, we are not sons of God by birthright. We were made by Him, and we have been purchased by Him, and therefore we are owned by Him, and He loves us, so we are His children, members of His household in that sense. The Old Testament also spoke of God as a father to His people collectively, just like we think of it. So you have verses in the Old Testament like Malachi 2.10, have we not all one father? Didn't God create us? But no pious Jew would ever refer to God as His own father. The casual familiarity that's implied in that expression was offensive, but even more than that, to say God is my Father, to claim to be the only begotten of the Father, was to claim prerogatives that don't really belong to any mere man. And, and, and everyone in the ancient Near East saw that clearly. They instantly understood that when Jesus claimed to be the one-of-a-kind, only begotten Son of God, That was the same thing as saying He was equal to God. And that comes out very clearly in John chapter 5. I think uh, Mike read that earlier today. John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, when some Jewish religious leaders were grousing about Jesus healing on the Sabbath, and Jesus says, my Father is working until now, and I am working. And John says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but, and this is the important part, He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. So this expression, Son of God, in the sense that it is applied to Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, that's a title of deity. And The idea of this quote from Psalm 2-7 in Hebrews 1-5 is not to say that Jesus was conceived and born as a human in order to step into the role of God's Son. The whole point is that He is eternally God's Son, so that He is one in nature with the Father, equal in authority with the Father, and worthy of the same worship as the Father. So back to Hebrews 1 verse 5, and let's candidly admit now that there are some hard questions we need to answer if we look at this passage closely. Here are the questions that I bet you're wondering about. How can we say Christ was begotten, 
Why would we use that expression if he has existed from eternity? What does begetting mean in a situation like that? If self-existence is an attribute of deity, how can he be both God and begotten of the Father? And when did this begetting take place? The text says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What does that word today refer to? Because it seems to fix a point in time, doesn't it? When did this occur? And incidentally, it's not the only time Psalm 2 verse 7 is quoted in Scripture. It's also quoted again by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5, but also, more to our point, it's quoted in Acts 13 by the Apostle Paul when he's preaching at the synagogue in Antioch. He gives an abbreviated history of God's saving work, and then he says this in Acts 13 verses 32 and 33. He says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. Now, some commentators point to that text, Acts 13, and say that suggests that the day that's referred to in Psalm 2, today, means the day of Christ's resurrection. Because he raised Jesus, Paul says, as it is written in the second psalm, you're my son, today I've begotten you. Now that view has some really serious problems because that would imply that Christ was, was not truly, or at least not in the fullest sense, the Son of God until He rose from the dead. That's literally what the verse says if today refers to the first Easter Sunday. Now that you've arisen from the dead, I have become your Father. Albert Barnes takes that view. In his commentary on Acts 13, 33, he says this, quote, "'It is evident that Paul is saying that the Lord Jesus is called the Son of God because He raised Him from the dead, and that he means to imply that it was for this reason that He is called the Son. This interpretation of an inspired apostle fixes the meaning of this passage in the second psalm, and it proves that it is not there used with reference to the doctrine of eternal generation nor to His incarnation, but He is called His Son because He raised Him from the dead." Now in case you wonder, I don't generally recommend Albert Barnes, even though his commentary is considered by many people to be a classic. He does occasionally have some helpful insights, but he was a lousy theologian. And he tended to read his own warped doctrinal ideas back into the biblical text, and this is a classic example of that. He really butchers Acts, this chapter in Acts 13. He rejected the eternal sonship of Christ. He didn't believe in it. Paul himself actually explains the connection between Jesus' sonship and the resurrection, but he does it in Romans 1 verse 4 where he says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of God in holiness by His resurrection from the dead. That is, by the way, one of the great Trinitarian doctrines in the New Testament. Christ was declared God's Son by the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity are in that one verse. Christ was irrefutably singled out as the one true Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. And Paul uses a word that means He was marked out. He was literally marked off by boundaries. What the resurrection did was signify or declare to everyone as proof that Christ is God's Son. 
He's the one true eternal only begotten Son of God, and He alone is that. You see, if the, if the name Son is proof of the deity of Christ, remember that's the argument that's being made in Hebrews 1, then His Sonship cannot be a role that He assumed at some point in time. Otherwise, it would only pertain to His humanity. Because as God, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's immutable. In other words, there was no point in time when Jesus became a son. And the language of Scripture repeatedly confirms this. The New Testament repeatedly says that God sent forth His Son. That's Galatians 4, verse 4. God sent His only Son into the world, 1 John 4, 9, and verse 10. He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And again, verse 14, the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Or John 3, 16, God gave His only begotten Son. Romans 8, verse 3, God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And verse 32, God did not spare His own Son. Christ was not sent from heaven to step into a new role as God's Son. God didn't send Him to become a Son. None of those verses say that the Savior was sent to become a Son. They say the opposite, that the Son was sent to be a Savior. And also, by logical necessity, think about this, if Christ was not a Son until His incarnation, then the Father wasn't even a Father yet when He sent Him. The New Testament says repeatedly, a dozen times or more, that He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or it calls Him God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now think this through. If God is called Father, that presupposes that He has a Son. It's reciprocal. Unless you're prepared to argue that paternity is not an eternally defining property of God the Father, you can't deny the eternal Sonship of Christ. And if you say, his sonship pertains to his deity, it must therefore be eternal. Colossians 1.15 says, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If you take that verse out of its context, you might think that verse is suggesting that Christ had a beginning, firstborn of all creation. But remember that Scripture says repeatedly that Christ is the one who made every created being. The next verse Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And that agrees with John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So He can't be a created being. John 1, verse 2, He was in the beginning. Again, that's a biblical terms signifying eternity past. He was in the beginning with God. So you put all of that together, and it should be clear that Colossians 1.15 is about the eternal generation of the Son. He's the firstborn of all creation. If you do away with the eternal generation of Christ, you destroy the familial relationship that defines the Trinity, and you turn that father-son relationship into nothing more than a temporary metaphor. Now, I will admit, I didn't always see these things clearly. And even when I began to study this issue intently, it took me a while to really begin to understand it. This is not one of those truths 
that is easily explained or immediately obvious. And it's not an easy concept to wrap your brain around because to our finite minds, the whole idea of begetting speaks of the origin of someone. After all, you and I were begotten as zygotes. So how can someone who is God with with no beginning and no end, how can He be begotten? This is not an easy doctrine. This deals with ineffable truth. What can this word begotten, what can it possibly mean in relationship to someone who is the same yesterday and today and and forever? How can He be both eternal and begotten? Now, that's not a, obviously not a new or novel question. I'm not the first person who's asked it. Biblically-minded theologians have taught and defended the eternal sonship of Christ for 2,000 years. Augustine said it like this, God the Father begot the Son outside of time. Or in the language of the original Nicene Council, Christ was begotten, not made. That is a purposeful use of biblical language, and everywhere you find that language in Scripture, the point is that the Father and the Son are of one substance, eternally equal. The Sonship of Christ is not about His earthly submission as a man. And the the technical term that theologians use to explain this timeless relationship between Father and Son, I've used this term already a couple of times, let me explain it. The term is eternal generation. Spurgeon said of that expression, he said, quote, I confess that there is a mystery here which I can neither understand nor explain, but, he said, Scripture teaches it and I unhesitatingly believe it. I'm with him. Spurgeon also said, quote, the mysterious doctrine of the Trinity and the equally mysterious and sublime doctrine of eternal generation are best left alone by feeble minds. He said, I don't think there are a half dozen men alive who ought to meddle with the doctrine of the eternal sonship of Christ. Now, Spurgeon was not saying that you and I with our feeble minds shouldn't study, at least I have a feeble mind, I'll admit it. He wasn't saying we shouldn't study this doctrine. He's saying the same thing that Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16, that there are some things in Scripture that are hard to understand that the ignorant and unstable tend to twist those doctrines to their own destruction. In other words, this is kind of graduate-level doctrine, and it is not a suitable place for anyone to experiment with creative theology. Don't tinker with a doctrine like this. Trinitarian doctrine, the whole doctrine of the Trinity, is not a suitable playground for theological novices. But, you know, it seems to me like every dilettante dabbler in doctrine is just itching to tackle the things in Scripture that are the most difficult to understand. They always want to change it or tweak it and make it so it's not really hard at all. That's a bad idea. And Spurgeon was pointing out the folly of small-minded people and hobbyists who think they can improve historic Christianity's long-standing creeds by tweaking and tinkering with doctrines that they clearly haven't even begun to grasp. Spurgeon said that kind of small-minded theological tampering saddens the humble-minded and it it affords enlightenment to no one. In other words, you're not going to make anybody understand this better than they do. What you're going to do is twist the doctrine out of shape. 
The fact is we cannot wrap our feeble minds around the idea even of eternity or anything infinite. You can't, you can't conceive of a universe where everything is finite and yet you can't wrap your mind around infinity. You just can't do it. So we are forced to acknowledge that the whole idea of infinity, while we admit we can't comprehend that idea. The eternal generation of Christ by His Father is just like that. We have to acknowledge it even though we can't really wrap our minds around it. Psalm 2-7 and Hebrews 1-5 must be consistent with the rest of Scripture. And so we are forced to the conclusion that here at least the word today cannot signify any point in time at all. This is speaking of an eternal reality, describing it in finite language so that the expression this day sounds like a point in time to us, but it's actually talking about the eternal now of our timeless God. It applies to every day in the realm of time. The context of the original psalm is actually consistent with that interpretation. Here is Psalm 2, verse 7, the whole verse. It says this, and it's the voice of Christ speaking, "'I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you.'" The decree, that I'm convinced is speaking about the eternal decree of God. It belongs to the time before time, when there was actually no such thing as literal today. So why do I say this is vital to our understanding of the Trinity? Why is this even important? Remember what I said at the beginning. No one else besides the Son, not even the Holy Spirit, is ever said to be begotten of the Father. This is unique to Christ, and it's what makes Him unique. In John 15, 26, Jesus says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. That's an expression that evokes the idea of breathing because the word for spirit in the Greek is pneuma. That's the same word that means breath. So in the same way that the Son is eternally begotten by the Father, the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. Those terms are vital to our understanding of the, the Trinity. You know, I hope, that the Three persons of the Godhead are co-equal and co-eternal. They are of one substance. There is, and this is important, there is no hierarchy of subordination and submission between them. They are equal in substance. They, they share the same attributes. They have one divine will and one divine purpose. The three persons are one divine being. We worship one God in three persons. That's Trinitarianism. And each person has a distinctive property, and those properties define the relationship within them. The Father is distinguished by paternity. He is unbegotten. The Son's distinctive property is filiation. That's a technical term for sonship. And the Spirit's property is spiration, which is a technical term for the action of breathing. So paternity filiation and spiration, those are the individual properties by which we know each of the three persons of the Trinity. And in fact, one 19th century theologian describing this wrote this quote, that there are such properties and relations we know. What they are, we don't know. I agree with that. And 
it would be utterly foolish to dismiss or explain away any important biblical truth just because it poses a challenge to our understanding. The generation of the Son and the procession of the Spirit may mystify us. They're hard for us to explain, impossible for us to explain, because they're not like anything else we know. But these are clear and necessary biblical doctrines. And furthermore, the eternal sonship of Christ is one of the definitional doctrines of biblical Trinitarianism, the contemporary evangelical movement's tendency to ignore or dismiss doctrines like this just because they seem difficult. It's one of the reasons there's so much confusion nowadays about the Trinity. So the novel ideas like eternal functional subordination and and the growing popularity of oneness Pentecostalism, anti-Trinitarianism, these are clear signs that too many people in the church today, including some people in positions of leadership and influence, are not really well taught regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. And yet, There is no doctrine more essential to our confession of faith as Bible-believing Christians than the doctrine of the Trinity. These are not truths you can brush aside as if it's too obscure and too arcane to really be important. It is important. It defines who we worship. The writer of Hebrews starts here precisely because there is no doctrine that has more far-reaching significance and, and nothing that has more serious practical implications than the issue of who we worship. The people of the first century who were tempted to revert to Judaism, they hadn't yet grasped that to walk away from Christ was to turn away from God Himself. The full truth of Trinitarian doctrine had been revealed to them. God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That's 1 John 4, 9. And John 5, 23, Jesus Himself said that our duty as believers is to honor the Son just as we honor the Father. And then He added this, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. John 15, 23, whoever hates me hates my Father also. 1 John 2, 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. And John 2, 9, whoever does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. You leave Christianity for Judaism, and it's a sign you don't really even know God. You can't turn away from Christ or deny His deity or neglect to honor Him as you honor the Father, because if you do, you're turning away from the true God. That's how important this is. This is not some abstract, arcane, and practically insignificant doctrine. People who refuse to honor the Son as they honor the Father do not have God at all. Scripture's clear on that. And that includes Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the deity of Christ and theological liberals who portray Christ as a a nice guy and a good teacher but not really God. It includes Muslims and everyone else who follows any non-Christian religion. They might say that they like Jesus, that He was a true prophet, He was a wise teacher, but they deny that He's God. And Jesus Himself said you cannot, if, if you don't receive the Son, you can't have the Father either. And so this doctrine has real practical ramifications in the ultimate and eternal sense. You don't have saving faith at all until you confess that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. In other words, to save people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Romans 8.32, God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us. 
And that truth is so much richer when you grasp the the reality that the eternal love that covenanted to save us is truly the love of a perfect divine Father and His perfect divine Son. Once you grasp that, you can begin to have an inkling of what our salvation cost our Heavenly Father. Whoever you are, the way of salvation lies open in front of you. Christ calls you to repent of your sin, to renounce it, to agree with God regarding your guilt, and He invites all comers to partake freely of the water of life He offers. And we do that by faith in Him, receiving Him as Lord and God. John 7, 37, He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Now, I need to stop there, but one very quick thing before I close. Someone's going to ask, why didn't you deal with the second half of verse 5? It's another Old Testament quotation, this time from 2 Samuel 7, 14 and, and also 1 Chronicles 17, 13, two identical verses where God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. It's part of the covenant that God made with David regarding the perpetuity of the Davidic throne. And in the immediate Old Testament context, it seems to refer to Solomon. Both 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, the verse just before that line, I will be to him a father, says, he will build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. So that's Solomon, right? How does the writer of Hebrews apply this to Christ? We don't have time this morning for a full answer to that, but I want to give you the short answer so you don't go away confused about it. The Davidic and the Solomonic dynasty established the earthly throne that Jesus will one day occupy, ruling the entire universe from His throne in Jerusalem, in the New Jerusalem even. And that promise hidden in the Davidic covenant was by God's own design and intention actually a reference to Christ. We don't learn that till the New Testament. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament author unveils this fact for us. It was true in a limited sense about Solomon as well, but those words made an even larger statement about the eternal relationship of God the Father and God the Son, and someday maybe we'll come back for a closer look to that. For now, I need to close. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You sent Your only begotten Son into the world to make propitiation for our sins. Give us a fuller and richer knowledge of Christ, and may we never turn away from the truth of Your Word, any of it. May we never be apathetic about anything You have revealed to us, and may we never settle for anything less than the surpassing value of knowing Christ, we pray in His name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.